Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast where we discuss all aspects of medical device and pharmaceutical regulatory strategy and clinical strategy from bench to bedside. This is part two of our two-part episode on one of our most popular and well-liked submissions, abbreviated new drug applications known as ANDAs or ANDAs. This part of the episode is more focused on management of the submission process and the importance of having an expert help you through the submission process. Really put time and effort into the program management aspect of it. It is a little bit removed from the technical piece, but you really need to guide the technical writers or your, your stat, the SMEs or whoever's writing that submission and help, help them by really making sure that everybody's in line having those more complex discussions about what we were just referring to, you know, like where's that line in the sand? What is the something that maybe we want to be silent on and see if the FDA asks or go ahead and put that up front because it's really important for whatever reason the case may be. In this episode, our guest Sandra Kirkus provides advice on how to manage ANDA projects, the importance of strong project management, project management tools, how to optimize the ANDA writing efforts as a leader, and strategies for companies outside of the United States referred to as ex-U.S. companies. Sandra spends some time discussing why having a strong U.S. agent partner for outside U.S. companies to help shepherd them through the submission is important. However, this advice rings just as true for companies inside the United States. Although U.S. companies don't need a U.S. agent to submit the ANDA or ANDA application, having somebody that plays the role of a U.S. agent for ex-U.S. companies insofar as providing expert advice and guiding them through the process can be really helpful. All this is to say, having an expert partner help you with the process will significantly improve your chances for submission success because a strong expert partner will proactively identify and remedy potential issues before they become major challenges. I wanted to address one thing before we jump in. You may have already noticed that Sandra sounds a bit different than she did in part one. Regrettably, we did experience some technical difficulties, forcing us to record the latter portion of the interview over the phone. I hope this doesn't dissuade you from listening on because Sandra packs a lot of great information into our short discussion. With that, let's pick it up with Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Thank you for coming back on. Building on what we talked about last time, which was the basics of ANDA, the ANDA writing process, and a submission process and agency communication, let's talk details about the document, putting it together and getting it through. You and I have both written regulatory documents and we've both seen copies of regulatory documents written by other companies. One thing that stands out, at least to me, is that there are many ways to write a single regulatory document and that a single regulatory document can be written many different ways, even within the same template. I've also noticed that there are many ways to overshoot or come up short. Specifically, I've seen cases where people make it way too hard, adding too much detail or going too far above and beyond to demonstrate conformity or rationalize partial conformity. Conversely, and I think unfortunately this is a bit more common, regulatory documents can fall short either due to a lack of detail, lack of focus, lack of effort, general lack of conformity, or a disregard for the regulations the documents are written to. Setting the latter case aside, can you give us some take-home messages on how to avoid going too far? Specifically, can you give us some take-home advice on sections or activities or parts of the process where people try too hard or go too far and how to avoid that? One of the things 
You know, and I think maybe this is just colored by just some of the things that we've just been talking about because of the communication, which is really after your initial application. But I'd say a lot of times when people get those initial requests and you need to update a certain section or sections, a lot of sometimes like we've just talked about, it's it's a high burden and it, it can be a little frustrating or daunting, you know, figuring out what the agency wants and then what the update is required. But sometimes it, exactly like you said, sometimes we make it, we're making it too hard. Like sometimes it's it's just a question or it's just a clarification. If they're not asking for additional data, then don't give them additional data unless it directly supports a, re, a response that you're giving them. Give them exactly what they, they're asking for, but without opening up another litany of, of questions. And I'd say the same goes through for when you're writing the application itself. Sometimes it makes sense to say, okay, well, this can be, this particular situation is a little complicated or, you know, maybe I, I say, for instance, with the, the manufacturing section, yes, you need to give the agency a, a clear understanding of what your, your drug manufacturing process is. But we don't necessarily need to go define every consumable in there. And we, you need to give yourself some flexibility. Sometimes putting every little detail in there is too much. What is in your technical documents doesn't necessarily need to be in your regulatory document. You know, and re- rely on your regulatory team to help you know when you draw that line in the sand, which side it needs to be on. I've seen both sides of it where people say, okay, well, yeah, we, we, we don't want to provide too much detail, so we'll give them no detail. Well, that's not, a, that's not good either, right? And then sometimes you, want, you, you give so much that so you're basically paralyzing yourself in the lifecycle management space. That makes sense. I think that's a common error encountered in a lot of regulatory submissions my doctoral mentor used to say essentially answer the question and be quiet sometimes this sometimes the answer is yes sometimes the answer is no and as simple as that and you don't need to go further so that's that's i mean i think that's a great tip and i think that's potentially overlooked people are so passionate about this and want to demonstrate how amazing this is or how how you've satisfied things but oh, but you're right giving them additional evidence past what they need means means that they need to evaluate it and if they evaluate it they may not evaluate it the same way you do um, and they may look at it differently and that may cause more questions to arise. Do you have any tips in the physical process of compiling and writing the ANDA application? Do you have tips for those doing it to streamline the process? The first thing that comes to mind is really put time and effort into the program management aspect of it. It's a little bit removed from the technical piece, but you really need to guide the technical writers or your, your stat, the SMEs or whoever's writing that submission and help help them by really making sure that everybody's in line in terms of what that what the goal date is, what the review cycles are, the timelines, helping them understand, just staying on track because. It does, the applications, they're, they're huge. And, you know, people are doing them in the midst of their 
other job, which, which is being in the lab or whatever the case may be. And so I'd say that the program management piece, I think, can be hugely helpful for the people actually writing the application who, you know, really need to understand what what needs to happen and how it all comes together. I've even in my past had uh, periodic one-on-ones with people who are writing the the applications to just instead of just getting people in it all in a room and telling us why we're always late, you know, when we're behind schedule, you know, getting on that one-on-one time, help going through the the sections, helping answering questions that they may have, it, having those more complex discussions about what we were just referring to, you know, like where's that line in the sand? What is the something that maybe we want to be silent on and see if the FDA asks or go ahead and put that up front because it's really important for whatever reason the case may be. Just really having those periodic discussions and really can drive each one of the sections, which in turn drives the, you know, overall submission. I understand that it can be daunting looking at all that has to come together. And so breaking it down into individual tasks and milestones can be helpful. And also having accountability, meeting with people and communicating that's important. Have you ever used an application or any type of tool to help project manage these types of projects? I have. I, I've done things as simple as using Excel to, uh, to using Microsoft Project. I being program managing by by need versus actually by, uh, by role is. Uh, I, I I know people who do program management are probably much more savvy at it <laughs> than I am. But I taught myself how to use Project for this very reason. But Excel works if you have to. Like just even, you know, and that can double for your submission tracker too for regulatory operations. And so it, it doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be usable. In software development, they often break down these projects are can be incredibly large, take years to develop a single application. So they'll break it down into short cycles. They're often called sprints, depending on the, the management style you use. Do you think that would be effective setting two, you know, two week cycle and saying in this two week cycle, this is going to be completed. And if it's not completed, it'll carry over to the two week cycle, but there needs to be a good reason why it's carrying over. Would you say that would be effective or no? I, I do. I do. Especially there's always tight timelines with, there's always, there's always multiple impacts when things are delayed or oftentimes. One that comes immediately to mind is the PPU runs and stability. You know, always the, they're always the last to come in and they're, you still have to create those, those sections uh, with, with that input. So it really helping people understand the, the implications for, for those delays would, I, I think that's invaluable. And I think a two-week incremental is a would be a fantastic start. Maybe not necessarily at the beginning. Maybe it could. I would love to see something maybe even gated, where, or maybe it could start out depending on how far out you're going. You know, like maybe monthly, and then as you get closer to the submission time frame, biweekly and then weekly. How about those that are submitting applications from outside of the U.S. Or XUS. What are the implications for those? Can anyone just come in and submit an application? I know, for example, that India is a large manufacturer of generic drugs. Um, would you say a quarter, half, three quarters, most 
generic drugs come from outside companies? And can you explain to us a little bit about the process? And more importantly, what tips do you have for for ex-US agencies that would like, or sorry, ex-US companies that would like to win approval in the United States? Oh, yeah, that's great. So first thing, so I, I must admit, I, I don't know the, the percentage offhand number generics that are uh, manufactured ex-US or uh, held by companies that um, are not in the US, but I know that it's growing. If I recall correctly, I remember seeing an FDA webinar where the, the comparison between now and 10 years ago, it's it, the, the generic uh, space has grown so much. And with that global, global manufacturing, and it's, it, it's amazing how, how, uh, how much that has grown and how many ap- more applications are submitted every year just uh, uh, to the agency. And it was actually one of the reasons that, uh, that the GADUFA was put into place is really kind of managing uh, all of those additional applications and the review timelines associated with it. That's a little bit of a digression, but going back to your initial question about the XU, XUS companies, I, in short, any you know, any company uh, can can submit an application to the to the FDA. Um, they all, regardless of where they are, though, you know. At, they still have to meet the same standards. Uh, the one significant difference, though, I'd say is for companies that are not here, uh, do not have an office or an established base here in the U.S., uh, they, they're required to have a US, what's called a U.S. agent. So a U.S. agent is a person or a company that is essentially your first uh acts on your behalf. So they receive all of the communication, they react on your behalf. So they, they can be, that they're, they're essentially that conduit for you. So, and that U.S. agent, you know, has to be on U.S. soil. So as long as you have an address here in the U.S., you can act as the U.S. agent. Um, but it's really nice and important because whoever, it, it's it's really uh, it's really nice because a lot of times that U.S. agent, uh, um can be can kind of double as that person who kind of gives you that insight into the FDA and the FDA regulations because they're more inclined to understand the nuances of what the FDA is really trying to get to. So you can kind of it's that's not always the case, but if you're lucky, <laughs> it is. Anything else you'd like to to touch on there? You know, I think the one thing that maybe uh, not directly related, but the U.S. agent, they really can help you what, what, what they should be doing, uh, what they should be doing for you. Aside from just the application, there's a lot of other nuances or require, requirements for a company that wants to commercialize a product for the U.S. To have the product, um, you have to register the product. You need to make sure the, the manufacturers are, you know, registered. You, you also um, have to deal with the importer, importer questions. If it's, you know, if your product is chosen, if, you, if upon introduction into the country, there's certain questions. All of those things is really where your U.S. agent is really valuable because they can help navigate those, those issues for you or the, those requirements. It, you also have to uh, do an annual registration, you know, for both the product and the facility. So all of those things are things that your U.S. agent should be helping you with. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And 
it sounds like when selecting a U.S. agent, you want somebody who's highly qualified and has done this a time or two. Would you say that's correct? Oh, definitely. Even if they, they may not know that all the answers, but they need to be able to know where to find them. And that's, and that's really the case. Understanding at minimum, you know, the basics of what that, that company needs to, needs to do and at what point in the process, helping to maintain that. And, and then if anything comes up, like for instance, you know, you never know, like for instance, with the importers, there's always a different kind of question that can come up with that, helping to at least do the research in order to get those questions answered quickly, because otherwise they, they, you won't get your, your product released and distributed. Yeah. That makes sense. Having knowledgeable boots on the ground is worth a lot in the in the process because it can save a lot of time and headache and a good agent can see issues before they arise. Definitely. There's always something. There's always something new and keeping abreast of those regulations too because sometimes they can change. Another thing that just popped in my head was uh, was the the requirements to with the facility registration for instance, you know, there's also an annual fee associated, but that fee can change depending on the number of applications that you have and the size of your company. So little things like that can just just knowing little things like that can be very, very helpful for a company that's trying to navigate all this. I think part of the reason why Global became a U.S. agent is because we're doing these routinely and there are several companies as the ex-U.S. generic market grows, there's a need for knowledgeable, competent U.S. agents. So we're trying to help where we can there. It's definitely one of those things that the more you do it, the easier it gets. <laughs> and having the, that, like you said, having that ability to do that and help out is really nice. We're here to help. Well, thank you so much, Sandra. There is a lot to think about here and you've given us some great tips. We like to wrap up episodes with a segment we call Favorite Friday Nights. Work is hard. Life is hard. How do you unwind on a Friday or celebrate a big regulatory win? To celebrate a regulatory win, I'd have to say I will literally jump up and down. Like I get so much joy out of that. There's nothing more more fun to me than the endorphins that go into that. I mean, because there's so much work that goes into a regulatory win. And so I uh, sometimes I just can't contain it. And I will just literally jump up and down. And then I will, after that, I'll proceed with telling everybody that was, that had any hand in it. Because there's nothing, there's nothing better than telling somebody such good news. Oh, that's wonderful. That's truly passionate. Well, thank you so much for your time and for coming on. We really appreciate it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes of Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, season two. In this season, we will focus on tips and best practices for submission writing, regulatory strategy, and clinical development. If you have any other questions about anything we discussed in today's show or anything related to any regulatory or clinical topic in general, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly by emailing us at info at globalrwc.com or submitting a request for information on our website, www.globalrwc.com. There you can find more information on our approach to solving a wide variety of regulatory and clinical challenges. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other app that you are listening on.